The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 14. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples to us, that we may not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's good to be with you. If you haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grab a Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 uh, is where we're going to be. You're going to need it because we're going to be in it for the whole time. Um, man, last week it was so fun. You guys, what a time. Uh, in case you're not familiar, if you're new, uh, last weekend was our third annual, what we call our uh, Citizens Church Family Vacation. Uh, it's just a fancy name for a church retreat. We think church is a family, and so instead of a retreat, we call it a vacation. We're very cool like that. Um, so we got away to the mountains, um, and it was Man, I, I, this is not like pastoral uh, bravado. I, I'm hearing about answers to prayers, both that the Lord did on that weekend, but also in the days following that would literally, figuratively blow your mind. Like legit, hey, we're praying for this on Sunday morning and then Wednesday afternoon, it's like just comes true. And so, I, man, if you missed it, I, we missed you. Uh, so next year, we're going to run it back, Lord willing. We're aiming for the second week of November again. Uh, and so set it aside, mark it. If you're not a member and you want to come with, we've got three membership classes next year before we hit it. So you got plenty of time to hop on in. Man, what a weekend. Uh, but we're, we're diving back in today. Another standalone sermon, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I should have mentioned two weeks ago that I've been working through 1 Corinthians in my own time with the Lord. And so you're just getting some of what the Lord's been uh, working on me about, particularly today. And so let me pray for us, and then we're just going to get right into it. Let's pray together. Lord, we just want to settle our hearts before you right now. We've got a lot going on. Thanksgiving, holidays, brings a whole slew of emotions, good and bad, and happy and sorrowful all at the same time, and so we want to just acknowledge our own state of our souls before you, Lord. Someone who welcomes us, speaks to us, embraces us, calls us through Christ, children. Once we come before you like children, needy and desperate and uncertain and a bit afraid, 
clinging to the promise that you meet us here. So we believe that and we trust that. We trust that you're going to speak to us through your word, that this is not an ordinary few moments. This is a moment full of potential for the Holy Spirit to work. And so we ask that he would. Now you would do what you've been doing for hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of years. Take your word by the power of the Holy Spirit and get it into our hearts such that we are changed. We need you, Lord. We love you. Probably sings in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. amen. I don't know why I moved here. I don't really like anything about this city. I mean, the traffic is awful and the food scene is bland and the housing prices are outrageous and it's all frustrating and annoying and it just life in the city is difficult and I just I wish I lived somewhere else man my job is just a lot right now like my boss is the worst and my coworkers are annoying and I go back and forth oscillating between completely overwhelmed and bored out of my mind and the pay is awful. I just, I wish I could do or find something else. My spouse has been so frustrating lately. It's like they just don't understand me. They don't get what I'm going through. They don't know what I'm experiencing. They don't pay attention to me. It's like anytime we sit down, they just are on their phone or not listening or don't care. We've lost the romance and excitement. I just, I wish it was different. My kids are needy. I mean, day after day, it's just one thing after another after another. They're yelling because they don't have grapes. I give them grapes, and they throw the grapes because I gave them grapes. It's just so much, and I'm just so tired. I wish I could just have a little break. And my church just feels like it's lacking right now. Community group is dull and boring. The pastor keeps talking way too fast for way too long. They don't offer the ministry that I want. They don't have enough people my age. I wish it was closer to my house. I wish 1030 instead of 930 because that's just way better. I just wish it was different. Now I'm curious, do any of those statements sound remotely similar to anything you have said or thought over the past few days? Past few weeks? Past few months? If so, unfortunately for you, the scriptures would say that you are probably guilty of one of the most prevalent and yet widely accepted sins in the world and the church today, an act of rebellion against God so damaging and unholy that according to the passage today, those who did it were, quote, destroyed by the destroyer. A posture so dangerous to our souls that one theologian calls it, quote, the empowering force of hell itself. Today, I want to talk about grumbling. Or if you prefer, it's much more fun synonyms, complaining, murmuring, venting, or my personal favorite of the week, a general posture of smoldering discontentment. Grumbling is what comes out of our hearts and our mouths when we think life should be something or something else or something more. Grumbling, that's where I want to go today. Now that I've frightened you a little bit, uh, if I can just be honest for a second, I am preaching today uh, deeply aware of my own conviction and repentance in this area. Like I, It is laughable and not laughable at the same time how bad at grumbling I am. 
Uh, I was going to use an example from last night, except I have examples from this morning of my own grumbling. <laughs> I mean, I'm literally getting ready to get out the door to preach about the danger and threat of grumbling, and I'm grumbling in my soul because my two kids just won't stop following me around the house while I'm trying to make breakfast and get ready. So I don't have last night, I do have last night examples. I also have this morning examples. Grumbling is just a thing. And the Lord's been, I mean, wrecking me from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 over the past few weeks. And I thought, you know what? Misery loves company. So I hope I'm just going to pass it along to you. But genuinely, I, um, we've used this quote before. Pete Scazzaro in his fantastic book, Emotionally, Emotionally Healthy Church. If you have not read it, Pete Scazzaro, Emotionally Healthy Church. He has this wonderful line. He says, as the leaders go, so goes the church. And unfortunately for us, uh, or fortunately, that means in some good things. So if the leaders in the church commit themselves to prayer and generosity and evangelism, tends to that the church goes in that direction as well. But it also happens in the negative sense. And I think it happens particularly in this area of grumbling because I'm really bad and I have a grumbling spirit within me. And I think I've led our church in a really terrible direction where grumbling is just one of those things that I think is pervading its way through our church family. And so what I want to do is share what the Lord's been kind of working on my heart about. And so this sermon, more than anything else, is just a sermon of conviction and repentance. So hopefully that's okay. I'm just going to publicly repent for 30 minutes, and then we'll uh, take the Lord's Supper together. Sound good? All right. First Corinthians, thank you. <laughs> I don't know what I would have done if you just said no. Um, <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 10. Let's just work through the passage together. I just want to point out some things that Paul is doing. And, and really, I'm just going to warn you from the jump. Uh, Thinking about grumbling and seeing it in the scriptures is a little bit like taking the red pill in the matrix. Like once you take it, you're never going to go back. You're just going to see it all over your life. So I apologize. Okay, here we go. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse one. Everybody take a deep breath. We've got a ton of work to do. I hope it's helpful. We're talking about grumbling. Here we go. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth that our fathers. All right, so just pause there. Paul is about to recap a story that is told in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. It's about the Israelites, and they were enslaved. If you've seen the movie, you know the story. They were enslaved in the foreign nation of Egypt for hundreds of years. God raises up Moses, 10 plagues, all of that fun stuff, delivers them out of slavery, takes them into the wilderness where they will wander for 40 years. And so what Paul's going to start alluding to in the next few verses is all of the ways God provided for them while they're in the wilderness. It's just one thing after another, after another. Keep reading. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. So this is a reference to Exodus chapter 13. When they first get to the desert, God sends them a cloud during the day to give them shade, to guide where they're supposed to go. And then it turns into a pillar of fire at night to warm them and guide them and keep them safe. Keep going. All pass all under the cloud and all pass through the sea. This is a reference to Exodus chapter 14. God parts the Red Sea. They get to the edge. They're like, what are we going to do? Egyptians are here. Sea is there. God's like, I got this. He parts it. They walk through dry ground. He delivers them and saves them. Keep going. Verse two. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the See, so Paul's using baptism as an analogy to talk about how they are brought up under Moses' leadership. It's a way of referencing what God does in the Old Testament here in Exodus, where he confirms his covenant, his faithful relationship with his people, and says they are brought into that. So, so far, got a cloud at day, pillar of fire at night, parting the Red Sea, bringing them into the people of God. All right, keep going. Verse 3. 
And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Now, when you hear the, see the word spiritual there, don't think about how we think about it today. So today we think of spiritual as like ethereal or mystic or not grounded. Spiritual in the scriptures just means coming from the spirit coming from God. So when you read spiritual food, he's referencing Exodus chapter 16. The Israelites are hungry in the wilderness. God's like, I got you. He rains down literal bread called manna from heaven that they can collect every single day to provide for their needs. Well, they eat said bread. And then in chapter 17, they're thirsty. And God's like, I got you again. And he has Moses strike a rock and water comes from the rock. And they're able to drink and nourish their thirst. Keep going. Verse four. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. All right, so real quick here. There's a Jewish rabbinic tradition of the rabbis during Paul's day that they tried to answer the question, how is one rock the same as a different rock? And what I mean by that is if you read the story of Israel, in Exodus 17, they're thirsty, and Moses hits the rock, water comes from the rock. And then you read the same thing happening in Numbers chapter 20. 40 years later, in a different part of the wilderness, they're thirsty, Moses strikes the rock, and water comes from the rock. And so the rabbis in Paul's day were like, how does the rock get from here to there. And their leading theory was that basically it just followed them as they wandered through the wilderness, which is like the definition of pet rock, right? Like thousands of people wandering the wilderness and the rock's just like, I'm here, I'm here, I'm coming, I'm with you, I'm here. Now, whether or not that's true, if you're like, I'm way too secular, I'm so skeptical, that's okay. Whether or not it's true, Paul's just alluding to this story to say that Jesus was there, even in the story of Exodus, to care for his people. Next week, we're going to start our series on Advent, thinking about the incarnation, Christ taking on flesh. But that is not the first time Jesus shows up in the story of God's people to care for God's people. He's all over the book of Exodus, caring for them, ministering to them. Paul's like, I don't know if the rock traveled, but either way, the rock was Christ. God was providing for his people. So he tells this whole story, alludes to everything God did. What's his big point? His big point is this, God was good to Israel. I mean, he was kind beyond their wildest imagination. He delivered them out of slavery. He gave them his tangible presence in the cloud as a guide and protection. He grafted them in as his people and gave them his law, the Torah, to guide them. He gave them food and water. His spirit was with them. Christ himself was ministering to them. He was saving them and delivering them and caring for them every step of the way. Here's the problem, verse 5. Nevertheless... With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So God was kind to the Israelites, he saved the Israelites, he cared for the Israelites, and yet, with how the Israelites responded, he was not pleased. They chose, according to Paul, evil in response to God's kindness. And then he goes in over the next few verses about what some of that evil is. Let's look at them together. Verse seven. So he says, okay, we might not desire evil as they did. Here's some of the evil. Verse seven, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So he says, part of the evil of the Israelites were that they were idolaters. They're worshiping something or someone other than God. That's the basic definition of idolatry. Don't just think like a golden calf. That's what's happening in Exodus, but also think anything I'm putting as the centering reality of my life by which I sacrifice everything else to get it or to worship it or to pay price to it. 
That's what idolatry is. Idols don't have to be golden calves. They can be your job. They can be your kids. They can be your finances. They can be your comfort, power, approval, fill in the blank. He keeps going. Verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Sexual immorality, very simply, is any sexual thought or deed outside of God's design for sex between one man and one woman in the context of the covenant of marriage. Paul says the Israelites are guilty of this evil and God punishes them for it. Verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Putting Christ to the test is where you have a a need or desire for something from God, and rather than approaching him with faithful and hope-filled prayers, trusting in his kindness, trusting in his goodness, rather, putting Christ to the test is putting God on trial. All right, God, if you're actually good, you're going to answer in this way. There's a difference between, all right, Lord, I need you to show up. Please show up. I'm desperate here. I'm trusting your goodness. That's hope-filled prayers. And putting Christ to the test, which is, if you don't show up and answer how I want, then you're not good. You're not for me. You don't care. You're not powerful. That's putting Christ to the test. And according to Paul, it's evil, and God punishes them for it. Now, we doing okay? We're not even not grumbling yet. Now, those three things, I think, to be honest, aren't that all surprising, at least to me, right? Like, if you've grown up in church and you hear the line, do not crave evil, do not desire evil, you're probably like, all right, idolatry, sexual immorality. I can even understand, like, the putting God on trial part. Like, I am good with that. But look at the last one, verse 10. Nor grumble, as some of them grumbled and were destroyed by the destroyer. Paul says, do not desire, do not crave, do not go after evil as they did. And here's one of those evils, grumbling, whining, complaining, griping, pity party, moan, groan, criticize. He's alluding in all of these to stories, but this one in particular is Numbers chapter 14. So the people, after wandering through the desert, God providing for them, caring for them, they finally get to the promised land where God has been taking them over the course of this wilderness wandering. They get to the edge of the promised land and they send up 12 spies into the land. Hey, men, go check out the land. See if we can take it. See if we can conquer it. See if this is what God has for us. 10 of the 12 come back and they're like, bad news. The people are massive, like definition of bulking season. Okay, like huge just me. All right, cool. I mean, just huge out of their minds, Jack, this is not going to go well for us if we enter into the land. And the text says the people turn to Moses and Aaron and their grumbling is, why did you bring us here just to have us killed? Why did you bring us here? We should have stayed in Egypt. At least we were safe there. Why did you bring us here? What were you thinking? Now, just for the record, if you read the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers, this is not the first grumbling. In fact, by my count, this is grumbling number 15 of the Israelites. In fact, if you go back through the stories that Paul just gave us and summarized for us, both in chapter, in verses one through four and following, it's like grumble after grumble after grumble. All of these, even the ones where God is showing up in patience and kindness and mercy and favor, all of them start with grumbling. For 40 years, the people are grumbling. They're like, we don't have anything to eat. And God's like, here's some food. We don't have anything to drink. Here's some water. Why are we in the wilderness? It's hot. Here's a cloud. Like he just keeps showing up and providing for them. And finally, they get to the promised land, 40 years of grumbling. And God says, no more. Because of your grumbling, you're going to be destroyed and your body's left in the wilderness. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. If you know the story, This entire generation of Israelites, except for the two spies who came back from the land saying, we can get it, we can take it, God is with us. Everybody else but those two don't enter the promised land and their bodies are scattered in the wilderness. 
they don't get to enter into the blessing. So God is not pleased because of the Israelites' idolatry and sexual morality and putting Christ to the test, but he's equally just as displeased, and Paul considers it evil, aka morally rotten, for them to grumble both to God and to one another. So the question becomes, what's Paul's point? Like, what's he doing with this text? Well, here's what I want to show us. Look back at verse 6. Now these things, Paul writes, took place as examples for us. If you got your Bible, you want to mark it, highlight it, underline that word examples. Paul's going to repeat this phrase down in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. Now this is where it gets really fun. All right, track with me. That word example in the Greek can be translated as types or patterns. In other words, what Paul is saying is this is the way the world operates, meaning it happened and it happens. It happened a long time ago out in the middle of nowhere in the desert, and it happens all of the time today. And so Paul tells the story of the Israelites to show the pattern of how things tend to go in the world. And we're not studying the whole book, but if you were to look at the rest of this letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, there's all sorts of parallels. Paul is trying to show the church in Corinth how they are similar to Israel. So he says, okay, look, Corinth, Israel baptized into Moses, you baptized into Jesus, chapter one. All right, Israelites, God's spirit over them in the cloud. Corinthians, God's spirit all over you, chapter two. Israelites, God gave them spiritual food and drink and manna and water. Corinthians, God gave you the bread of, and drink of wine and communion like we saw two weeks ago. He's trying to draw their attention. Look at the parallels. Look at the Israelites. Look at you. Look at the Hebrews. Look at you. But here's the thing. Not all the parallels are good. That's why he goes on in verse 11. These things happen to them as an example to show you the pattern of how the world works. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul says, Corinthians, I want to make sure you see this. Your story is eerily similar to the Israelites in Exodus, both God's blessing and kindness and favor and grace, and also the rebellion of the people. And you're living into this age old pattern. This is how it works. This is how the world turns. This is how it happened and how it happens. God is kind to his people. People forget his kindness and they grumble. That's what he's trying to show in 1 Corinthians 10. God is kind to his people. God's people forget his kindness and they grumble. That is the pattern. It happened a long time ago in an ancient wilderness to the Israelites. It happened in the church at Corinth in the first century. And it's the same pattern in our own lives today. God is kind to his people. His people forget his kindness and they grumble. I mean, here's what the reality is, right? Like we read the story of the Israelites in Exodus and we think to ourselves, they're so silly, right? Like you read Exodus and you're like, firsthand, these plagues are nuts. And then second, they're so silly, right? Because God is literally dragging them out of Egypt all under his own power and might. He's got a cloud over their heads during the day, a cloud of fire to warm them and guide them at night, literal bread from heaven, literally falling from heaven and water from a rock. His law is given to guide them and protect them. His spirit is with them. And we read about their grumbling after all of that and think, that's ridiculous. I would never. I would never. I would never see how God saved me out of slavery. I would never see how God gave me his presence to comfort me. 
I would never see how God gave me more food and water than I could ever need or imagine, how he gave his word to guide me, how he put his Holy Spirit inside of me, how he ministers to me daily through the work of Christ, and then I would never see all of those things and then turn around and complain because my immediate desired preferences aren't getting met. I would never. It happened a long time ago in a wilderness far, far away. It happened in the first century in the church at Corinth, and it happens all of the time today. God is kind to his people. We forget his kindness, and we grumble. This is the pattern of the world. This is the pattern of our lives as sinful people. So Paul says, look at these examples. Look at these patterns. Heed this instruction, lest you too fall, because grumbling is an evil with which God is not pleased, which I can be honest with you is really hard for me to hear, because I'm like, it's just grumbling. Like, anybody else have that rising up within you right now? No show of hands, right? But it's like, it's just grumbling. Like, grumbling is my preferred way to make friends, right? Like, yes, I would love to bond over the mutual neediness and frustration of our children. Absolutely. Yes, I would love to bond over how high taxes are and how ridiculously the government spends money, except when it benefits me. I would love to complain. That's not a political statement. It's just what I think. Yes, I would love to gripe about the city we live in. I would love to gripe. I mean, how do you build relationships with your coworkers for Pete's sake, right? Grumbling about the people in charge of you. That's how it works. Nobody else? Everybody else builds relationships much more healthfully than me? Sweet. Awesome. I mean, this is like a daily reality. I mean, um, like this morning, last night, yesterday morning, like grumbling is the thing. Like this, surely it's not a big deal, right? Like why is this such a big deal? Destroyed by the destroyer? All right, like I can maybe get on board with idolatry. I can maybe get on board with sexual immorality. I can probably get on board with the whole, you know, putting Christ to the test thing, but grumbling seems ridiculous. It's just grumbling. Here I am grumbling about the fact that grumbling's in the list. <laughs> so why? That's the question I've been asking because I, what I don't want to do is I don't want to apologize for God and his word. Yeah. Right? I don't want to be like, sorry, it's just what it says. We have to, like God's design is best. We say that all the time. It's not just the right way to live. It's the best way to live. And so why? Why does God care so much that grumbling means hundreds of his people were destroyed by the destroyer? You can go back and read Numbers 11. At one point, they're grumbling, and he opens up the earth, and 250 of them are swallowed up in it. Now, let me just real quick pastoral aside before I answer the grumbling question. If that's raising a lot of questions in your heart about the nature of evil and the punishment of God, we've... Uh, dealt with a lot of that in our Apostles' Creed series. We talked about that line, from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So please, on our website, citizenscharlotte.com, the sermon from the Apostles' Creed on judgment. We've dealt with a lot of that. I'm up here. I'd love to answer your questions. But it's a big deal. So why is it a big deal? Let me just, let me get to the thing. All right, why is it a big deal to God? Why is grumbling a big deal? Three things I want to hit just real fast, and then we'll head towards the close. Number one, grumbling is an affront to God's kindness and character. Grumbling is an affront to God's kindness and character. You've got 40 plus years, four decades of God's kindness in the midst of their grumbling. Just time and time again, giving them what they ask for, giving them what they need, giving them and providing for them and caring for them. And again and again, when they get to this point where they don't think they're going to have what they need or want, they go, okay, you know what? I'm hungry. God's been faithful for four decades. Maybe we should just pray and ask him to help us. Instead, what do they do? Oh, why are we out here? I want to go back to Egypt. You're not good, God. What are you doing? Moses and Aaron, blah, grumble, grumble, grumble. What is that saying their true belief is about the God they follow? 
right? Like if I was to do a bunch of kind things for you and every time I did that kind thing, you were like, I don't know. Or next time you needed something, you came to me and you're like, hey, usually you're not the type to help out, but I just want to like, you know, maybe ask, what would I think you think about me? I would think you think I'm the worst. Like you doubting my desire to help you says something about what you think about my character. How much more true is that when it comes to God? Because here's the deal. Even if your grumbling is not one for one about God, it always involves your view of God, right? So when you grumble about your kids, it says something about what you think God gives as gifts to his people and the way he sustains us in our weaknesses. When you grumble about your job, it says something about whether you think God is sovereign over vocation. When you grumble about this city, it says something about whether or not you believe Acts 17, where God says, I put everyone where I put them so they will reach out and find me. You're saying something about his heart and desire to know you, even in this place he's put you. When you grumble about a church, this church, the church, it says something about what you think God's heart for his people, his bride truly is. Grumbling is not just grumbling. It is saying something, and it's, uh, I'll put it this way, it is revealing our theology about God. It's revealing what we actually think about him. Second thing is that grumbling leads to idolatry. Second reason why grumbling is a big deal is that it leads to idolatry. I think you can walk the order of Paul's story here backwards, right? At least this is how I've seen in my own life. For me, so often it starts with grumbling. I just wish I had a little more free time. I've got all these demands and pressures and responsibilities. I have my work at the church. I have two kids and a wife. I'm trying to work out and have friendships and be a responsible, contributing member of society. I just don't feel like I have any time for me. And that grumbling turns into testing. All right, God, you say you're good. You say your yoke is easy and your burden is light. You say you're the good shepherd who leads me beside still waters. And it's not like prayerfully hoping, all right, God, I believe your goodness. Will you give me rest? It's where are you? Show up. Grumble, grumble. Give me what I need. And then because he's not a cosmic vending machine, he doesn't always answer when I want or how I want. What do I do? I start looking somewhere else. I need this and God's not showing up. And so my grumbling starts leading me to try to find what I think I need in all sorts of unhealth and unrighteousness and idolatry. And so grumbling is a big deal, not simply because it's evil in and of itself, but because it leads to further evil idolatry and rebellion. You see that in all of these stories, all of the stories, verse seven, verse eight, and verse nine that Paul gives the church at Corinth, all of them start with grumbling. So grumbling leads to idolatry. And number three, third reason why grumbling is a big deal is that grumbling is corrosive to life with God. Grumbling is corrosive to life with God. Think about, for just a minute, what the Israelites lose here because of their grumbling. Right, stick with me on this. They lose out on entering the promised land. Now, if you want to track the narrative of scripture from Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve in the garden, all the way to Revelation 21, new Jerusalem, new heavens, and the new earth, God's design, that whole narrative of scripture can be summarized in one sentence. God's presence with his people in a place. That's the, you're like, what's the scripture about? It's God's presence with a people in a place. Genesis 1 and 2, he's with Adam and Eve, his people, his presence is there in a place of the garden. And where he's heading to is God's people, all the redeemed in Christ, in God's presence, in a place, the new heavens and the new earth. And the narrative of scripture is all building to that. And all along the way, there's little ways that God is giving people glimpses of what that's going to look like. And one of those glimpses is the promised land. And so for hundreds of years, these people would have known the promises he made to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a a great nation and take you to the land I will show you. They would know those promises and here they are on the edge of the promised land with hundreds of years of God's faithfulness behind them and they're kept from it. Why? Because of their grumbling. 
because of their complaining. But not only that, right? So that's like the obvious one. Not only that, but think about what they missed during the 40 years of wandering. Like, sure, they're in the desert, they're in the wilderness, but God is providing for them and he's caring for them and he's he's in with them in his presence and intimacy. And yet they miss out on decades of that, decades of receiving and living in the love of the heavenly father because they are too busy grumbling about what they don't have. And this is why grumbling is corrosive to life with God, because what happens in our grumbling is it fixates our eyes on the proverbial desert that we're living in, and we miss all of God's kindness to us in the middle of the desert. Because we're just grumbling about how we wish we were in the promised land already. I just wish, I just wish, I wish this was better, I wish this was easier, I wish I had a different job, different city, different spouse, different kids, different this, different that, fill in the blank, and we miss what is God actually doing in his kindness and provision for me in the midst of the desert. Grumbling makes us miss all of that, and it corrodes our life with God. All right, so Paul says, look at these examples. Look at these patterns. It happened, and it happens. So here's his invitation then, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation uh, Side note, not in the notes. That's just a good verse to just have on lock in the memory, right? Like our ability to self-deceive is so great. This would be such a good verse for us to keep on the forefront of our minds. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed. Be on watch lest he fall. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's two patterns happening in the life of the Israelites. Pattern number one, God is kind, they forget it, and they grumble. But pattern number two is God stays faithful throughout. This grumbling people eventually is the genealogy line by which we will see the Savior come. The Savior will celebrate in a few weeks at Christmas, right? So God uses the unfaithfulness of these people, works in the midst of all of it, and still is faithful to them to lead them in the mark of of his kindness and generosity to the world. And so he's faithful to them. And Paul says, I need you to see this pattern because here's the good news. God is also faithful to you. And no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He'll give you a way of escape. And so what, how I want to close is just give us a couple of means of escape that I think God has given us for how to av- escape against grumbling, how to fight back against grumbling. Here's where we'll close. Just some few very practical things. How do we, in light of God's faithfulness, to give us a way out, escape from grumbling? If you're convinced, I have taken the red pill, Tim. I know grumbling is a thing. I want to fight against it. How do I do that? Two practices. Number one, this one's going to sound counterintuitive. Number one is lament. First is to lament. If you're not familiar, lament is what the Bible would use to refer to hope-filled and hopeful bringing of our grief to God. Talked about this a lot this past weekend at family vacation, but the the goal in this is not to say, hey, stop grumbling and go be happy. Right? Like that's not a, that's not the, the go-to easy win, right? Life is hard. Like we face brokenness and struggle and suffering and pain, some very real, some we just need a bit more patience, and some in between, right? But the Bible gives us the path for what to do in our sorrow, and it's not grumbling, but it's also not naive optimism. 
charts this better way. The Bible calls us to hope-filled and hopeful lament, bringing of our grief to God, humble honesty and grief in prayer, where we bring our doubts and our grief and our frustrations and our complaints and our sorrows to the Lord, and we wait on him in patient surrender and trust. That is very different than angry demanding, you're not good and you better prove otherwise. The prayers there are so different between God, this is hard and I'm lifting it to you, trusting you're going to change it or change me. And why don't you do something already? Come on, God, figure it out. Do something or else you don't care. You see the difference? This is Mark Vrogop in his book on lament, dark clouds, deep mercy. He says it this way. He says, if you're going to offer a complaint to God, it must be done with a humble heart. Proud, demanding questions from a heart that believes it is owed something from God will never lean into true lament. In other words, lament does not give you an excuse to wallow in your questions or frustrations. It is a means to another end. You are not meant to linger in complaint. If you never move beyond complaint, lament loses its purposes and its power. Complaint is a step in lament by which we then grow in trust of God. We don't just live in the world of complaint. That's grumbling. We don't just live in the world of complaint to God. We don't just live in the world of complaint to one another. It's grumbling. It's dishonoring to God. It's broken. It displeases him. So we learn instead to lament, which is to complain in a Godward direction with hope and trust. And that's the invitation of lament. Second way, second practice for us to escape, we'll end here, is the practice of gratitude. Gratitude. We fight through conscious effort and practice to grow into more grateful people. So this is what I've been trying to put into practice very terribly over the last month, uh, is to not just try to stop grumbling, but to start actually being more grateful. So when I feel the draw to grumble about my kids, not just go, okay, don't grumble, but actually be grateful for what God has given me. When I feel the pull to grumble about my job, not just to go, okay, don't grumble, but to actually learn to be more grateful for what he's given me. Not just start, stop grumbling about my friendships, not just start grumbling about my relationships, but actually learn to be grateful for them. Because gratitude is not simply a posture, it's a practice. It's something you can actually do. And so let me just help you think about some ways to do gratitude and bring it into your everyday life. The first is through cues. First way to practice gratitude is through cues. Cues are just little short things you know you're going to do most every day that are reminders you put in place in order to practice gratitude. So this can be as simple as, hey, a cue for me is when I pick up my my fork or my knife or my spoon to eat, that's a cue that I want to pause and give God a short, Lord, thank you for this food I'm about to eat. It's a short little cue of gratitude. Putting on your shoes, right? As you're putting on your shoes in the morning, it can be a cue of gratitude. All right, Lord, I'm about to head into my day and there's gonna be some good and some bad and some in between. And so I'm just receiving this day from you as the day you have given me. This can be waking up your child. All right, Lord, I'm about to enter into the room. I'm about to get him out of the crib. All right, Lord, let this be a cue for me to be grateful that you've given me this gift of life. Another way to practice gratitude is through rhythms, rhythms or regular routines. This can be, uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the, the gratitude prayer, the prayer of examine, or each night or once a week, you are quiet before the Lord. You don't just rush from Netflix to bed. You go from Netflix to pray to bed. And you have a time where you just examine your day before the Lord and you just examine it and you give him praise and gratitude and gratefulness for what he has done for you. Another rhythm can be worship. This can be a space of gratitude where you learn to give thanks to the Lord for what he has done for you. I'll give you one other thing that we've implemented over the past year or so in our family is at the dinner table, we do something we call high-low and buffalo. Anybody else a high-low buffalo fan? Sweet. A few of us. Sweet. Uh, In our house, they're high-low marshmallow buffaloes because they are. 
Um, and uh, basically, it's a chance for us to go around the table and we say a high from our day and we give God praise for the high and we say hello and we, we lament together. Here's something bad that happened to me today. And then we talk about marshmallow buffaloes, which is just a thing that made us laugh. And it's really silly and it's really cheesy and Nora just smiles the whole time and we go around the table and it's really just a practice that is so mundane and ordinary and yet is teaching us to be grateful for what God has given us. And the last thing, it's a bigger gratitude practice that's coming up this week is one example of it, but feasts. Feasts, learn to be a people who feast, right? We want to be a people who fast and seek the Lord in prayer and mourning and repentance. We also want to be a people who are really good at feasting, right? The son of man came eating and drinking, right? He came feasting and celebrating because the bridegroom was coming for his bride. And so we want to be a people who feast. One of the things I love about the Israelites in the Old Testament is how much they eat to the glory of God. It's like everything awesome that ever happened in their history, they're like, we should have a feast for that, right? And so you get to their calendar and it's like feast, two days, feast, three days, feast, four. It's like they just feast all of the time, always as chances to remember and give God praise and thanks for his redemptive story and what he has done for them in their lives. And so be a people who learn how to feast in your families, in your roommates, with your community groups, put feasting into the regular practices of your life. Maybe as a group, you need to set aside, hey, this is not just potluck where we all kind of eat some food and chat. This is a feast. What do you need to do to turn potluck from just a time to kind of hang out and, and eat, and, but to be a chance to feast? Hey, no, no griping, no complaining at this meal. This is a feast. This is a Thanksgiving meal that we're going to do together. Maybe you need to put that rhythm in with some friends of yours, some roommates. Hey, once every other month, I'm hosting a feast, and the only rule is you have to come, you have to eat, have fun. It's all one rule. Eat, have fun, and you can't whine about anything. It's a feast. We're just going to enjoy it to the glory of God together. There's some ways to practice it. Here's my hope for us, is that we would be a people who desire the Lord greatly, and that do not fall into the same old pattern. The pattern that we are lulled to because of our sin is to have God be kind to us and then forget his kindness and grumble. And I just pray by the power of the Holy Spirit through ordinary practices like lament and gratitude that we would cut it off in the middle and go, no, God has been kind to us. And where life is broken, I lament back to him. And where it's beautiful, I give him thanks. That's the goal for us as we head into Thanksgiving. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, grumbling is so sticky. It's so hard to uproot out of our hearts. It's just the narrative, native language of our culture, it feels like, Lord. It just feels like it's what we do. It's how we talk. It's how we build friendships. It's how we communicate. It's what we say to one another to bond and to get through life, Lord. But I pray that we would be a people who are different. People marked by hope, people marked by thanksgiving, people marked by hope-filled lament that don't ignore the brokenness of our lives, but are willing to step into it and bring it to you, not with griping or complaining, but with trust that you're going to do what you want to do, but also people of gratitude. Lord, you've given us the beautiful invitation of thanksgiving, even this week, where our entire society is like, let's give thanks. Lord, I pray that you would grow us to be such a people that this Thursday feels like a normal day because it's just what we do every day. Sure, there's some turkey and there's some trimmings and there's some fun. It's unique, but we're used to being a people who give thanks. You've done so much for us. 
what our redemptive history shouts to us, how kind you have been to us. You've rescued us out of slavery to sin. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us your word to guide us. You've given us our, what we need. You've given us more than we need, not just bread to satisfy our bodies, but the bread of life to satisfy our souls. So we want a people that live in gratitude, thanksgiving. We need you for that, Lord. Proud things in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.